welcome to Rising. Welcome to another week. We'll be covering the news, and you know, every day we just relish doing it. How was your weekend, Brianna? My weekend was action-packed. I, action I did the hack where you fill your Friday with a lot of fun activities, and you make your Saturday feel like a Sunday, and it's like a three-way, three-day weekend in your head. Oh, you're playing 4D chess <laughs> with your. That's what I'm doing. With uh, with the weekend, uh, I did some rollerblading. Um, I saw I saw on the social medias you were you were you're more than enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. What are we talking about today? Well, Robbie, uh, this weekend the Netherlands and Denmark committed to granting Ukraine's longtime request for U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets. President Vladimir Zelensky hailed the move in a recent video posted to social media. Let's watch. Meanwhile, new reporting offered up over at The Washington Post contends that the Ukrainian army is successfully exploiting Biden's cluster bomb gamble by unleashing the controversial and deadly weapons along battle lines to push Russian soldiers back. Cluster bombs, which since 2008 have been outlawed in more than 120 countries, have a high dud rate and are known to explode years or even decades after war's end. One cluster munition watchdog estimates that upwards of 90,000 civilians have been killed by this weapon since the 1960s. Meanwhile, journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted, the group that by far most supports the U.S. fueling of the war in Ukraine is self-identified liberal Dems, even as Western media admits the counteroffensive is failing. One major reason is they loathe Russia due to 2016 and are thus willing to destroy Ukraine to harm Moscow. I mean, this, this is the ongoing tension. Um, and I do think that when the United States government chooses to act in ways that human rights organizations across the world and every government I think almost every government has banned cluster emissions except for not United us, States, not Russia, not Russia Ukraine. And Ukraine. <laughs> exactly. So when you are so much on the wrong side of it, this isn't even a left-right issue. This is a global consensus versus not issue. You open yourself up as the Democrats who are promoting these policies. You open yourself up to the criticism that you are not the real anti-war party, right. that you don't have any real anti-war bottom fides, that you are more invested in whatever kind of imperialist goal is, 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 is extant right now outside of any real humanitarian concerns. And it's not clear, again, this is the question that many peace-minded people have been asking since the beginning. What is the end game for Ukraine? You're not going to defeat a nuclear power, so increasingly escalating with mm -hmm. munitions the likes of which disproportionately affect civilians and civilian children. And, and your own civilians. I mean, this is and, taking yeah. place in their country. Yeah. Even if, if this would be resolved, they could be dealing with the with the literal fallout, the impact yes. of using these weapons for decades to come, as as people note. And look, I understand. And, and yeah, and that mission of like totally defeating Russia hasn't changed. Yeah. Look, I, I I understand. I don't. I don't think, given that Ukraine is the invaded party, I, that they should have to fight with one hand time behind their back. I get why that wouldn't make sense to people, but that doesn't obligate us to give to supply them with those weapons. Is a and b if they're using these weapons, you know, to to prevent Russia's further incursion while they negotiate a peace deal or come to a ceasefire arrangement. I think that would be like the steel man case for doing this. Yeah. But it's clear that they're just using this to cause more death and destruction. 
when? Until eventually they're totally defeated anyway? They're, just, yeah. they're totally defeated and then their country is, has embedded you know, landmine land sort of situation right. throughout the... Like, why? Why would we do that? Why would we want to contribute to that situation? Exactly. And why, I think, is the right question, Robbie. The Washington Post article does cite some hesitation by military experts who are wondering if this is even providing the kind of strategic advantage that it's being sold as. Um, the author right here writes that, that military analysts have questioned the wisdom of using cluster munitions in areas where Ukrainian soldiers plan to maneuver, given the threat of unexploded or uh, bombs posed to their troops. But in interviews, soldiers and government officials shrugged off the threat, arguing that troops already have to tiptoe through a gauntlet of mines and tripwires, unexploded some munitions only at a marginal risk, they said. That seems deeply short-sighted. Yeah. You're talking about using these in forested areas. Are you, are you planning for those forested areas to be a war zone for the rest of the duration of the history of the country of Ukraine? Because that is, that is what you're po the risk that is being posed, not that during the fighting, soldiers are already very careful, so who cares? This is a, this is a weapon that specifically has disproportional effects on civilian populations. How can you be so cavalier? Yeah, I, and the human toll is just staggering. I mean, as you read through like the Washington Post story, I'm just I'm struck by the, you know, by by um, you know people who are having you know, surgery to have shrapnel removed, yeah. who are the, the lucky ones, the ones who lived. Um, interviews with people who you know, everybody knows someone who's been multiple people who've been killed in this war effort. And I, you know, I, I don't want to minimize um, the Russian government's responsibility for this calamity. It it is horrible. Um, you know, despite any. We can say that while still talking about the policy choices that led both all three countries um, to this point, and it's so horrible. But that needs that should create. You'd want um, among sober political leaders, at least in the U.S. Maybe Ukraine can't see it because they're you know they're. Their people are being killed, and they're they're like I, they're in the fray, and they're they want revenge, and they want you know to drive. They want to kill the people trying to kill them. That's how war works. I get it, but we, the U.S., should take a sober approach and say what? How can we contribute to this in a way that ends it? The way a way that stops it with whatever that takes, even if that means there are parts of Ukraine that are now part of Russia or that are independent states or whatever those people want. Those people should have self determination, right? Is it worth? Killing tens and hundreds of thousands of people to enforce a to, to keep a line in the ground here rather than here. Yeah, I mean politically, this is a very interesting question as well in the context of the upcoming um, presidential election. I think one of the things that Glenn is really putting his finger on here is that whether or not you think it's in good faith or bad that there is this growing anti-war um, fervor among Republican voters. Uh, it's real enough that various Republican candidates have made the choice to either soft-pedal their views on wanting to kind of endlessly fund the Ukraine war or to come out strongly in opposition to it the way that Donald Trump obviously has and has been, you know, setting the tone for the party as a whole now for many years. And so what is Biden's response going to be? Does he think that the kind of Ukraine flag and emoji ethos that exists on Twitter among so many Democrats is going to work offline as well, where there are Americans who I think are much more persuadable on the question of, I have been dealing with high um, food mm -hmm. and gas prices. I have been hearing a lot about infl inflation since the pandemic. We have historically high housing costs that have even predated the pandemic. We have historically high education costs and historically high health care costs, and yet we're sending all this money to Ukraine. The reality is we could have eliminated all medical debt. Um, 
for $80 billion, and yet we're sending more than that to fight a war that we have mm -hmm. questionable involvement with in the first instance. Am I going to support a candidate at the polls who seems to be deprioritizing American citizens in this way? Right, and our, our leaders who are supporting sending all this money and weapons to Ukraine aren't really being obvious about—aren't uh, being honest mm. about what they think the actual goal is, right, because they're making these very lofty kind of nebulous claims to be defending democracy abroad, that kind of thing, even though Ukraine has had—the Ukrainian government has had to resort to illiberal um, methods during this war effort, including the suspension of what rival political parties and the free press and all sorts of things that, you know, the first things to go out the window in a state of war. Um, you know, the U.S. government has also done that in the past during World War II and World War I and the Civil War and every war. That's, like, normal. But it undermines the case that this is a necessary defense of liberal democracy of, 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 of our own values, when really it's we view Russia as a foe and want to make them suffer as they do this. Right. And they, we could just be honest. Our government could just say that and see if people think that's worth funding, but they're not saying that. Well, some of them have accidentally, you know, Anthony Blinken, yeah. they've said they've they've said as much in various statements over time, but I, I really do think that piece is important, but combined with the knowledge that there were all of these scuttled negotiation attempts yes. over a year ago, at which time the death toll and the cost to Ukrainians was so much lower, has the fighting since then meaningfully changed the negotiation terms in favor of Ukrainians? If the answer to that is no, then the, the American policymakers have a lot of blood on their hands. They have a lot to answer for. Absolutely. We'll have more rising right after this. President Joe Biden be heading to the witness stand. In the fall of 2022, Hunter Biden's attorney, Chris Clark, who just withdrew from the case last week, issued a warning. If the Department of Justice charged the president's son, defense, the defense side would call Joe Biden to the stand to testify, according to some really great reporting from Politico. Now, in the letter, Clark threatened that should prosecution of Hunter go forward, quote, President Biden now unquestionably would be a fact witness for the defense in any criminal trial. He continued, this of all cases justifies neither the spectacle of a sitting president testifying at a criminal trial, nor the potential for a resulting constitutional crisis. Of the new revelations, Republican strategist Chris Sims tweeted, quote, Hunter Biden's lawyers explicitly argued that the DOJ wouldn't want to be at odds with their boss, Joe Biden, and therefore should cut a sweetheart deal for him. And so they did, until a judge asked a few simple questions about it. Yeah, this is wild bombshell reporting from Politico. They were leaked some un, uh, previously unseen documents that gives a lot of insight in, into how that initial sweetheart deal, so you know, as it's being described, was negotiated. The deal that fell apart, as described here, after a few questions were asked about the legitimacy of it. And what's so incredible about it is that it's, it seems like Hunter Biden, as much as Joe Biden has gone to bat for his son and run cover for him, you know, in, in these these ways that can be interpreted as just being a good parent or what have you, but said, I don't know anything about anything. My son has not done anything wrong, keeping him close physically and socially and all of those kinds of things. Hunter Biden's attorneys were basically arguing that, threatening almost, that we will have to put Joe Biden on the stand if you do prosecute Hunter Biden. You don't want that conflict of interest. You don't want that dog and pony show. So you better let us free. And the, the other irony that comes out of this reporting, the other kind of interesting um, factoid, is that they were also arguing that because the probe began during the Trump 
presidency. And because Donald Trump was so vocal about wanting to go after Hunter Biden, talking about the Biden crime family, et cetera, that it would be a stain on the Justice Department if they actually did go after Hunter Biden, because it would be perceived as a political uh, persecution by Donald Trump. So they're arguing both, you know, bias of the Justice Department in this one way at the same time that they're asking for explicitly special treatment with the threat that they're going to put the president of the United States of America on yeah. the stand. And, and there are more details of uh, on the deal in this Politico uh, report, which is, it is wild how th th this deal was a godsend to Hunter Biden and the Bidens in general. It was going to protect him from a lot of potential future legal liability. Um, they, so the United States... I'm you're reading it. The United States agrees not to criminally prosecute Biden outside of the terms of this agreement for any federal crimes encompassed by the attached statement of fact and statement of facts attached to this memorandum. This agreement does not provide any protection against prosecution for any future conduct by Biden or his associates. So if he went out and created new crimes, those wouldn't be covered. But these statements of facts refer to specifically his time on the boards of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma uh -huh. and a Chinese private equity fund, as well as his business venture with the head of a Chinese energy conglomerate. So specifically, what is being taken out of the realm of possible prosecution is the very stuff that is of greatest public concern and potentially involves Joe Biden, the president. Yes, the pay-to-play scheme, the alleged pay-to-play scheme. So it's, so, so it is, it's, it's, it's totally a sweetheart deal. Not in term, not because um, giving him a lesser uh, situation with, with the gun or the tax issue is so wildly out there. That's sure. not that wildly out there. You, you know, prosecutors work out deals depending on how good your yeah, attorney is. Especially the gun charge. I think there's some that's, evidence that that's normally not well, charged and, up and, that and his Actually, his side was going to argue that even the, the law that says you can um, you could go after someone for lying on the form about a gun actually violates the Second Amendment. You get a conservative Supreme Court, sure. they would agree with that in a heartbeat. So fine. But immunity from prosecution for the actual pay-to-play stuff, for the corruption, the, for the stuff that his dad is on phone calls about, the dinner, all of that stuff. That is what you're, like, this is this is better. This is, you want to be prosecuted under these terms, like, because that, that gets you off the jail hook free card. for the future thing. It's, it's broad immunity. I mean, we're talking about like a half dozen years of tax filings. He says it was an accident. I was in the throes yeah. of drug addiction. I wasn't purposely trying to avoid taxes. But because of the time range that this encompasses, the plea deal encompasses, and the nature of the crime, it's not just taxes, remember. It's taxes for sums pay mm -hmm. for what purpose, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. That it is, it is incredibly broad and, frankly, remarkable that the kind of liberal media has held off paying more attention to this story in a serious way for as long as it has. And, but I will note the tides very much seem to be yes. turning on this in terms of the nature of the coverage, even in the most kind of liberal left coastal of magazines. I've noticed over the course of the past month, the past few weeks, that there is a lot more attention being played to this. And people are not as interested in running cover for Hunter Biden as it seems Joe Biden has been. And how, I mean, I'm sorry, but this is very discrediting of David Weiss that he put together this deal that again this is not a this is not a, uh, a a trivial issue given that president trump was impeached over something very related to this for for the the statements he made and his attempts yeah. to to grapple with ukraine in such a way that was just going to help his campaign but was pointing out so what he described was illegitimate financial behavior by hunter biden and by joe biden and this judge and this investigation yeah. 
they impeached him over it. So, so the fact that you would then you would take an action that would prevent the government from ever looking into this matter again, even if new facts came to light, is crazy. Yeah, I do wonder if there's legitimacy to the idea that the arguments that were being made by Hunter Biden's lawyers were persuasive for, for Weiss. So the idea that you can't come after us, you can't come after Biden because it would impugn the integrity of the Justice Department on the basis that Donald Trump has made it so clear that he would, for political reasons, like mm -hmm. to go after Hunter Biden. Like, do you seem like you are corroborating the political impulses of a departing president if you, if your genuine investigation happens to line up with what he's been advocating for from a political perspective? And what do you do in that situation if you are white, who, again, was a Trump appointee, who doesn't seem to have a background which would lead him to want to for political reasons, protect Hunter Biden, but who might, for professional reasons, have been persuaded that the mm -hmm. DOJ can't look like it's uh, a handmaiden of the Donald Trump agenda? Yeah, I don't know, but it's 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 very bad. It's just very bad. Um, it's uh, it's you know getting it, it, this would have this would have stopped the government from looking into what sounds like very legitimate problems. Um, you know, good on, yeah, good on the media for now covering Politico did a good job with this piece. Obviously, Politico was, frankly, the most guilty party mm. in the kind of whitewashing of the laptop story to begin with. Mm. They, they are the ones that actually printed the headline that said, um, you know, 50 or whatever the number was. General. Former intelligence yeah. officials say laptop is Russian disinfo. That right. was their headline. When actually, the intelligence people had said it reminds us of Russian disinfo, which that, too, was irresponsible, but it was Politico that took it a step farther yeah. and injected the idea that it's being asserted as disinformation. So we've come a long way from those days. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, more damning reporting in the New York Times reveals that until this year, David Wise, who has led the probe into the tax and business dealings of Hunter Biden since 2018, appeared willing to forgo any prosecution of Hunter Biden at all and end the investigation. However, according to the Times reporting, Weiss's staff recalls he suddenly had a change of heart in the spring, right around the time a pair of IRS officials on the case accused the Justice Department of hamstringing the investigation. The Times also reports that just this summer, Hunter Biden's lawyers lobbied the Justice Department to prosecute whistleblowers Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler, contending they broke the law by spilling details of the investigation to Congress. Now, a spokesperson for Mr. Weiss had no comment, according to The New York Times. Mm. Yeah. You know, whatever one thinks about whether or not prosecutorial discretion is real and therefore the IRS whistleblower testimony might not have been as dispositive to, let's say, someone inclined to be trustful of the DOJ and Weiss and Hunter Bi uh, Joe Biden's Justice Department and all of that, these leaked documents that demonstrate that the deal on its face was so irregularly favorable and that by, uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers themselves were making what, in any other context, we'd be describing as something akin to like a threat or blackmail mm -hmm. uh, of, the, of his own father, of the president of the United States, I think it was a much more clear picture of the bias afoot here. You can make the debate, okay, the, they can negotiate a better tax terms on the tax parts of the deal. Um, and the IRS whistleblowers who say that, it, you know, they should have charged him more harshly on the tax crimes were just subjective or political or partisan or wrong. But it's much more difficult to argue, I think, with the the, the nature of the arguments that Biden's, Hunter Biden's own lawyers were making and the fact that now you can see behind the scenes that there was this objection from both the judge in the case and the legal community at large saying, 
It's the immunity. It's the it's yes. the long-term immunity that's the real that's the really difficult aspect of this negotiation to justify on any grounds. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we will continue following this story, of course, and we'll have more rising in just a minute. Joe and Jill Biden will visit Maui today as parts of the island continue to recover from what is now the deadliest wildfire in, US, uh, in the U.S. in modern history. However, the president and first lady's reception may be lukewarm. Some residents there say they feel abandoned by the administration. So why aren't you taking care of what you claim to be in charge of rather than sending out all these funds and whatever else you guys are sending to Ukraine or anywhere? Take care of here first. You know, this... I don't see why any president wouldn't step up and take care of what's part of their, you know, territory. I think it's a stupid move on his part. You know, I, Biden, yeah, he's an idiot. Sorry. No, not sorry. So far, FEMA has approved some $5.6 million in aid, a number that is expected to grow. Still, as critics have pointed out, this amount pales in comparison to the billions of dollars the Biden administration has sent overseas to Ukraine. However, if you make this point, well, you probably you're just a Russian asset, of course. This is according to Star Trek actor George Takai. He posted on X this weekend, quote, pro tip, whenever you see someone saying we could be spending that money on X instead of sending it to Ukraine, it probably originated from and was amplified by the Russians. Be smarter out there. If, no, if for, uh, I know for some of you, it's hard. He doesn't actually write his own tweets and posts, though, right? Wasn't that like a great unmasking of the because everybody loved his account for Is a while. True? And then I, I thought there was reporting that it's not even him. But Well, uh, he's, he's put his imprimatur on it, so he gets to take the glory and the criticism mm -hmm. both. All right, never want to shy away from such a smear. Former Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard took to Fox News last night to call out Biden. Let's watch. This is, a, this is a crisis that is continuing on. It is not at all lost on the people of West Maui when they're told that FEMA is going to give those impacted a one-time $700 payment. And as they look at the news, they're seeing tens of more millions of dollars being sent to Ukraine. Billions. Some of them said, hey, maybe if we just change the name of Maui to Ukraine, maybe then they'll pay attention to us. Yeah, this this is really interesting. So it's not just uh, George K. who's been making this argument. Biden defenders uh, across the spectrum have been saying this. One of those, remember those uh, Gen Z uh, social media activists that were hired by the Biden administration, oh, yes. Harry yes. Sisson, and there's like another one. Harry tweeted out a long missive talking about how stupid everybody is who is falling for this line, and th that Biden can only give $700 to each household in Hawaii um, because that's the limit that FEMA can issue without congressional approval for critical need assistance. But that, I think, is missing the point. Uh, the administration would never do anything slightly outside regulatory law. Well, just well, be also, here's unthinkable. <laughs> I, I, maybe I've missed it. I don't think I have. But it doesn't seem like the Democratic Party is calling for an emergency congressional session to up that amount of allotment because our um, American brothers and sisters over in Maui need our help. And at the same time, just days after these fires took place, Biden requested $40 billion additional dollars 
for Ukraine. So right. I, the, what, what people are Tulsi's objecting idea was good. To, they, should, they should trick Congress. They should. We're having a special session <laughs> to uh, find more cluster bombs. To we're gonna we're gonna do a little. Uh, we're gonna wrap the presents. That's what the congressmen are gonna be doing. Tying little bows on the cluster bomb packages. And then you get them all in the room. Say, just kidding. This is for Maui. <laughs> it's so macabre. But I mean, it feels like that's what you have to do. So I mean, this is this is the thing that the Democratic Party loves to do. They love to say, well, we would do more, but Congress and implicitly Republicans won't right. let us without actually Congress. getting to the point where you would force Republicans to have to have egg on their face by either opposing an actual congressional effort to vote on more aid to Hawaii or not. They just say, well, we, our hands are tied because you know how Congress is. They know how Republicans are. We're not, we're not actually going to call for an emergency session and make everybody come back from Martha's Vineyard to be in D.C. during the dog days of August to actually try to get aid for people who just spent—remember what, what these people just went through—crouching by seawalls, treading water in the ocean for hours while they watch everything that they've known and loved in the world burn down in the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. And Joe Biden and Jill Biden are just getting there now. At the same time that their entire party apparatus right. is running cover for the fact that they have only managed to allot $700 in aid for this group. Yeah. The thing that we learned from the pandemic was that the government actually can do more if they want to. Whatever you feel about it in retrospect, at the time, there was broad public consensus and support for issuing $2,000 checks to every single American, not just the relatively small number of people who were affected by this Maui fire. And yet now we're seeing in the face of what America can do, what feels increasingly like a choice about what they won't do in this moment. Right. Why are the Bidens going to Maui at all? They need to be in Washington. They need to be bringing Congress back to do something. If I mean, if that's what that's what needs to happen. Um, and you know, there should be. Um, I, I'm sure there are other emergency funds that can be called on that taxpayers have paid into. Um, we find right like I, we could just we could literally divert the some of the money we just approved to send to Ukraine to Hawaii instead. I bet that would be wildly popular with Americans. Is what are what are the spending priorities of the actual voters of the actual people who are taxed to pay for this thing and the actual people who should be having a say? Is their priority more cluster bombs for Ukraine? It's just so obviously a a a comms line mm -hmm. coming from the administration to me. Because imagine the different kinds of lines we could have gotten. We could have said, we are aware that we are being hamstrung in the short term by the cap on FEMA emergency assistance. But I'm going to work tooth, hand over foot to make sure that we raise that going forward. Here's what the, the, here's what the administration is working on to get aid as quickly as possible to Maui. Right. Here, here's what the plan is. Here's what we need from our Republicans across the aisle. Here's here, here like just right. lay, lay out the plan because unless you're arguing that the limits of the most powerful government in the world are that it cannot figure out how to get more than $700 into the hands of right a few thousand people, or maybe a few—I don't think it's more than a, a few thousand no, people that not, are. No, it's not. I mean, and, this, and this money, you know, this is this is money is supposed to be for, you know, for food and shelter for an immediate, yeah. not for uh, tons more money will be allocated for of the course. rebuilding of homes and of all that kind of thing. This but what, what's tacit here is to think is is the belief that seven hundred dollars is enough for that. Yeah. Your house burns down. $700 can't buy you one night in an Airbnb in a place like Hawaii. Because yeah. remember, this, this is a fire that happened 
on an island where there's pre-existing housing squeeze because the tourism industry is so big that like a, a huge percentage of the housing stock is taken up with Airbnbs and short-term rentals. So there isn't any, there are very limited other places for people to go and it's a very expensive place to live. They import so much of the normal goods that one would consume in a, in a, in a, in a day. It's very expensive to be Hawaiian and not someone who's there on vacation. And so in the context of all of that, to say, to really open your mouth, when people are objecting to the idea that $700 is a small amount of money, to open your mouth and have your response be, well, that's all we can give, instead of acknowledging on some level that that is not enough. Mm -hmm. That's what people are saying, that $700 is an insult when you are talking to someone standing in front of their house with everything they've ever known and loved and ashes on the ground. And that is what he's getting in trouble for. That's the callousness that people are reacting to. Not the idea that, oh, gosh, technically my hands are, are tied. Are you upset that your hands are tied? Do you have thoughts or feelings about the fact that this is the policy in the country that you run? Do you want to do something about that? I was also looking for an update on this um, water official who some people are now claiming uh, delayed um, the, the water being able to be used to put out the fire. Um, this person has been reassigned, and it looks like there will be um, an investigation. The attorney general of Hawaii is looking into it now. Um, again, this is it's been seized upon by um, by a lot of conservatives because there's some implication that he's kind of a DEI Woke. person or, or, you know, wanted to ask the water gods for permission or something first. But however, but the, the reporting I'm seeing on the delay is very much from mainstream sources as well. The, the, there was a letter sent by, um, by uh, one of the agencies responsible for dealing with the fire saying that, yeah, they just, they were like totally asleep at the wheel here. Um, so I, I very much hope to continue to investigate and hear more about that. Yeah, sometimes uh, it's the woke guy that's, that stops the shooter in the LGBT club, yeah. and sometimes it's the woke guy that does something wrong, like negligence and stopping a fire or fire management. And maybe it's not about whether somebody is woke or not yeah, woke. <laughs> not you, I know that you're not saying that to me. Maybe we should just judge people actually on their actions and how they behave in a certain circumstances and hold them accountable uh, accordingly. More rising right after this. GOP frontrunner Donald Trump will be skipping the upcoming first Republican primary presidential debate, opting instead for a sit-down interview with Tucker Carlson. This is according to news reports. Trump is getting hammered by some of his rivals for ducking the debate, but Karen Dunn, a debate prep specialist, broke down how they should use his absence against him even if he's missing from the stage. Here's what she told MSNBC's Jen Psaki. The idea that he's not going to be attending this debate because he has to report to jail uh, almost speaks for itself. And I mean, the jokes in this debate could write themselves if the candidates are willing to go on the attack. And the difference between this debate and a debate with a Democrat or what the um, Biden campaign messaging can be is that the Biden campaign is not going to be ambivalent about whether to take on the fact that Joe, that Donald Trump is missing from the debate stage because he's planning his next arraignment. That is, you know, that's going to be an easy message. I think for the candidates on Wednesday, it is it is awfully hard, um, especially because some of the questions that they know that they will get directly relate to Donald Trump, uh, to the last election, and to specifically his legal problems. So what do you think this means for the other candidate in terms of opportunities versus yeah. Lack of opportunity, Trump not being there. I mean, I don't think what that woman was saying is, like, accurate. So they should not say, like, he's not skipping the debate because 
he's, he's got scared. too much on his yeah. plate with the trials. Yeah. Um, that could become an issue down the down the, the road, yeah. and I think it is perfectly would be a valid thing to discuss. And if Republican primary voters are being strategic whatsoever, the fact that look, you already love him. I get it. You love Trump. You could not love anything or anyone more than you love Trump. But Trump has to convince new voters to vote for him if he's going to be president again. And will he be able to effectively do that while he's fighting four different trials? Will he be able to actually like campaign, like go out, speak, talk to voters about economic issues, about cultural issues, about anything that could bring new people into the coalition? Is he going to be effectively denied the opportunity to do that because he is fighting all these trials? That is, I think, an argument you can make. It's not literally true at this moment, though, which is what she was well, saying. Well, sure. Although I do think some Republicans, rightly or wrongly, are going to be looking at the Hunter Biden story exploding right now and saying, well, everyone's tarnished at this point. Sure, technically, we're not saying that Joe Biden is going to be tied up in a trial, but Donald Trump doesn't need to make a pitch in the same way that other candidates do. Everybody knows him. He was president before. He certainly has the ability to access many, a large pulpit, including from the courthouse steps. He can go on Tucker Carlson. It's not that he won't be heard and won't be able to campaign and won't be able to make his pitch in the same way that Biden obviously won't be hamstrung by his son being at trial. The question is whether or not he looks bad and dirty and corrupted because of the subject of the trial. And to, to the extent that that's the case, a lot of Republican voters are going to be looking over at, at, at Hunter Biden, rightly or wrongly, and saying it's even Stevens. Both well, sides are dirty. I know I agree with that, but for the general election, sure. for when we're past the point of it, you're right. None of this changes the calculus. If we're like holding votes for who's going to be the Republican candidate and Republicans are voting, it's going to be Trump. There's no question. But when we get to a general election, yes, he can campaign on his own persecution, and he can appear on Tucker, and he can do all those things. But I think that's increasingly speaking to the people he already has. Like, he's got a—I mean, we, you know, we assailed Hillary for not visiting Michigan, Pennsylvania enough in 2016. He's going to need to go to those states, like, talk to factory workers, talk to middle-class people, like, give speeches about the state of the economy and how much better things were when he was in charge and how Joe Biden has failed you. Not talk about, oh, look, I'm, I'm in trial and isn't this horrible. Like, people who are not already Republicans, from the poll, they, like, they don't love what Trump has done with respect to the election. They're not motivated, but they'd be Republicans if they were highly motivated by Are that. They he needs to go talk to real people out there and bring them onto the Republican economic policy. And I'm, I'm worried he's not going to be able to do that. It's not going to stop him from getting the nomination. It's going to stop him from being an effective general election candidate. And that's the case I wish they were making. All right. So how do you think the rest of the people, the rest of the Republican candidates who are going to be participating in this debate on Wednesday, how do you think they should play this? Do you think, as some have advised, they should take this opportunity to go hard on Ron DeSantis, given that until recently, at very least, I think at this point he's still about tied with Vivek Ramaswamy now for second place, but he was perceived to be the front runner. Is, is, is going against DeSantis the way that you demonstrate that you're the person that people should be paying attention to as the Trump alternative? Or is there some other strategy at play? Should you go after Trump and his absence the way that someone like Chris Christie has been doing now for months? The reality is, um, it, it seems unlikely to me. I don't know. DeSantis could have a, a surprise kind of pull up an upset in Iowa and, and use that to launch himself to better poll numbers. Anything can happen. But the most likely thing is that Trump is just going to coast to the nomination unless he gets he takes himself out or he gets taken out of the process because he's literally so 
encumbered by legal issues. So I, maybe it does make sense. I mean, I've said they're all playing for second. What, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe it does make sense. Yeah. And that's what you that's should be doing because you're not going to, you're not going to, when, when, when it push comes to stuff, when it, it starts, the, they're voting, Republican primary voters are voting, Trump is, is, is going to win. Now, that's not for certain either, but that seems like the writing on the wall. I mean, honestly, playing for second to me does seem like the choice would be strategically in the debate to go after Ron DeSantis and not to go after Donald Trump. Yeah. Vivek Ramaswamy has been very favorable about Trump, very flattering to Trump, has said that he's just running as a Trumpier Trump and has tried to kind of put him on a pedestal and then outflank him. Although he did say he's not being courageous for skipping this debate. I did see that Vivek said that. He said it's not a courageous move to skip the debate. Interesting. It's the, it's the, it's the meanest, the nastiest thing he said about <laughs> poor old Scathing. Donald Trump. Yeah. Right, but if, if I were, it, this could be a change in position for him as he's realizing that he really does have some wind behind him in this race. This most recent Emerson College poll from I think a couple of days ago showing them tied, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy tied at 10%, again, very far behind where Donald yeah. Trump is, but if this is a waiting game to see if Donald Trump just doesn't survive the, these trials politically, then that could be a good move. My question then is, what does Ron DeSantis do? Does Ron DeSantis attacking Vivek or some of these others make him seem even smaller and less significant and more afraid? But then what does that leave him? Attacking Donald Trump, a move that has not benefited him up until that point? Or is there a world where he can actually lay forward a policy a plan and a policy rationale and agenda that actually makes him look like a more substantive leader as compared to Vivek Ramaswamy, who has very much made his pitch on the basis of being anti-woke. His book, Woke Inc., is, he's been shopping that around for a while, and mm -hmm. that seemed to be the, the basis of his campaign, at least for, the, for much of it, and also doing things, advancing policies that are not especially popular even among conservatives, like talking about reinstating a draft and saying that you have to do, um, raising the voting age to 25, and said you that you've seen, draft? Yeah, he said that you have to, there should be some kind of public service requirement yeah, conscription style concert yeah. requirement in order to vote if you're under that 25. Really square with. He also wants to like cut the federal government by like 90%, which I love that. But we're also drafting people, so we're going to have more. We're not drafting. I shouldn't say that. Making Public voting service, contingent yeah, on conscription no, in a way that avoids a draft. Is Actually, what I I've seen say. him say a lot of uh, things lately that I thought you would like, uh, that I like, and that you would like. On foreign policy, he said, um, he's kind of straightforwardly said, um, frankly, I don't know. I didn't know a lot about foreign policy, but now the more I'm learning, the more I think. The kind of neoconservative bipartisan consensus is bad. He said he wants to cut funding to Israel. Did yeah. you see him say that? Uh, it doesn't matter. He's been very clear about wanting to escalate war with China. No, uh, he said uh, no. That's, he said he, Taiwan can defend itself. No, you know, he just he just said he in just the debate. Said that. I heard him say that he, we need to go from um, strategic ambiguity to strategic clarity about defending uh, Taiwan against China. I thought he he literally said GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy says China can have Taiwan. Um, after 2028, if he's elected, this is his headline. I, I, I didn't okay, hear. Okay, so I, I heard the strategic, strategic. Clear here it is from the from the New Republic. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I don't know if I can pull this up. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy said China could invade Taiwan without major consequences from the U.S. once he has hypothetically attained the nation's semiconductor independence in 2028. Okay, so do not mess with Taiwan before the end of my first term. What does well, that I even mean? That's, mean? Not a, that's not like a. So we're going to defend Taiwan until the end of well, my I mean, first that's, term. That's, that, that's the default policy. Well, that no, it's strategic ambiguity is the default policy. Not saying that we're absolutely going to engage in the war. This was the whole. This yeah. was the whole criticism of the Nancy Pelosi trip and that sort of an escalation, which that that people were doing a lot of 
chest beating about the fact that we were 100% going to go into war, which could potentially lead to an escalation from the Taiwanese about their own policy. So, I mean, I don't know. A guy who says, I've never thought about geopolitics until now that I'm running for president, and yes, yeah, some of the anti-war people have some good ideas. Me, personally, that's an indictment of their choice to run for president and maybe some hubris and not a um, validation of my confidence in their foreign policy um, chops. I'd rather have an amateur than the experts. The experts are all about Russian disinformation and we need to fight no, Ukraine I, I, forever. I'd rather and... have an expert who has a multi-decade long or at least more than one month long record of having a deeply held understanding of U.S. interventionism and why it's a bad idea. I mean, you've made, you've made the, um, you talk a lot about uh, Israel issues. That seems like a very important thing for you. He's, he's one of very few people. I mean, there are other Republicans, obviously, my own libertarian Republicans who said this. He said he wants to cut the the funding to Israel. They're not special. He said that they should not be treated he also, more special. He than also any wears other nice suits and has a beautiful family. The oh, fact that someone right. has one nice thing about them all does right. not make them someone that I would actually take seriously in a political context at all. But it's not about what me me and my vote. The question sure. is whether or not he he his pitch is broadly appealing to conservatives, of which I very much am not. And are the conservative base that he needs to attract going to yeah. prefer him to a Donald Trump figure. Well, he's doing it. Whatever he's doing, it's working on some level. He's massively increased his uh, poll numbers in some way. I, I saw uh, a conservative influencer type person tweet that Ramaswamy is running the campaign. DeSantis should have been running. I think that's it right. is some way not alienating, even though he is running against Trump, it's not alienating Trump diehard people in the way that DeSantis is. Um, I think some of it comes down, frankly, just to personality. Yeah. Some of it comes down to um, maybe staff, because a lot of the Trump DeSantis hate, obviously the two the two people actually hate each other, but also their, their backers, their online staffer, comms people, also hate each other yeah. uh, very viscerally. That a lot of these leaks over who said secretly racist things in in, in uh, messages, group messages, mm -hmm. with the, the, that all, all those things coming out. That's that's people burning people they used to be friends with because they were all Trump people, and then some people defected to DeSantis, and it's really messy. And there's a lot of bad blood. And, and, and part is, of that is is that. out of the fray because he's not a right. real threat. And as that so changes, far. that might also change. Now, so the, the average polls, I, I just referenced an Emerson poll that had Ramaswamy like neck and neck with DeSantis. The overall average, I think, um, from 538 as of uh, today, has Trump at 54.4%, DeSantis at 14.9%, Ramaswamy at 7.9%. So when we talk about Ramaswamy surging ahead, yeah. remember, that's less than Marianne Williamson has on the Democratic side, who's getting none of this attention, none of this airtime, zero town halls on liberal or conservative media, has uh, even uh, Elon yeah. Musk completely reneged on his offer to give a Twitter spaces to her and anybody else who wanted to, to have that. So he's still nowhere near what we're seeing on the other side, and not to mention, obviously, RFK Jr., who has been as high as 20 percent in these polls. So there is also this kind of weird um, soft bigotry of low expectations that's happening on the right, where people are breathlessly reporting on what's going on with the non-Trump candidates, I think because the liberal media largely very much wants there to be a non-Trump candidate, even though a much smaller share of the electorate seems to be interested in them than people like Marianne Williamson or RFK Jr. Mm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. In 2024, Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson told TMZ that network television will not let her campaign. CNN and MSNBC aren't having me on because they're just chopping wood and carrying water for the DNC. So 
all those groups that you mentioned are important. The young people are important and older people are important in uh, in uh, the demo in demographic terms. The issue with young people, though, is they're on TikTok, as you said, and I can get onto TikTok. There are no gatekeepers. So it's not so much that I figured it out. It's just that when I went there, I'm able to actually get across to young people who are on TikTok. And uh, it's a kind of democratization of the news. In response, journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted that RFK Jr. and Marion Williamson have more support in every poll than Chris Christie, yet Christie is constantly on TV, NBC, ABC, CNN, while RFK and Williamson rarely are. That's because the DNC instructed there's no Democratic primary, so the media obeys. Mm. Yeah, I mean, CNN, MSNBC, their viewers are never Trump type people, so they like Chris Christie, so they have Chris Christie on a lot. It's not, you know, it's not rocket scientist, uh, but uh, rocket science. But Marianne is absolutely right, and it, this is a good thing. RFK Jr. has did a similar thing. Um, this is the power of independent content creators and and platforms like social media that you know warts and all we do a lot of complaining about their moderation policies and all sorts of things but it, you know i always say let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater it is good that these platforms exist that there's independent um outlets and shows and creators who are using the power of the internet to bring you to bring the people perspectives and policies and ideas and people that they would have no way to reach otherwise because the mainstream media is so um is so uh, one single track minded in their thinking. Um, and, and people like Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. and a lot of my own libertarian people and a lot of your leftist people would, and just contrarians in general, people who fall outside. Again, it's a very narrow set of views yes. that is acceptable on cable. It's extremely narrow. Yeah, it's yeah. extremely narrow set of issues. So we are so lucky. Honestly, we are lucky to live in a time where you don't need that lane. It's nice to have it available to you, but you don't need well, it. Well, I do think ultimately you, you do need that lane. I mean, if you look back to recent history and recent examples, you know, someone who was shut out of the media, hashtag Bernie Blackout, was able to get very far in both of his races in the last two cycles without having media attention or getting the kind of media attention that you don't necessarily want. Like uh, Chris Matthews saying that they're going to, it's going to be brown shirts in the streets and beheadings in Central Park uh, mm -hmm. if Bernie were to win. He said, I believe after he won uh, Nevada, God forbid. Um, and on the other hand, on the other side of it, there were tens of millions of dollars in earned media for Joe Biden after he won South Carolina. So after losing the first three contests, he was able to have a resurgence because the mainstream media was in agreement that he was the guy, that this validated all of his losses and the fact that he was able to perform specifically with black voters in a state that Democrats were never going to win in a general election was reflective of his electability at large. And that, combined with some other factors, I think was really the death knell for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Moreover, when you look at Marion Williamson and RFK Jr., especially Marion Williamson, because RFK Jr. has gotten a hearing for more conservative media outlets in the way that Marion Williamson has not, and I think it is really hurting their campaign. Imagine where she could conceivably be if most Americans even knew that she was running, at, as it is, she's already polling better than someone like Vivek Ramaswamy, who, again, has been granted official town halls from mainstream news outlets um, and gotten much more attention. Marion Williamson can barely even get on a panel at MSNBC, much less a one-on-one -on -one sit down the way that certain conservatives have gotten on liberal, liberal media outlets. And even, even in the independent media, social media sphere, 
it's becoming increasingly difficult. So someone like Bernie was really buoyed by the online interest and the Bernie bro phenomenon and all of that on Twitter. Well, now you have a Twitter where Elon Musk says it's gonna be a free speech platform and says there's gonna be all this restorative quality and transparency. But although he came out and said very openly that he was going to offer his own platform to have the kind of um, introductions that he gave to both Ron DeSantis and RFK Jr., Marion Williamson has publicly and privately solicited him to follow up on that offer, and he has declined to do so now for months. So yes, she's now not even able to get the same kind of um, transparency or the same kind of equality on here on Twitter that seemed to used to exist. Now she's sidelined even further to TikTok, which I think is a boon for her to still have that, but that is also just a sliver of the population. Now it's younger people on TikTok, and I think you can demonstrate, you can see clearly in the numbers how much social media matters and how much media access matters because among the demographic group that mostly occupies TikTok, Marianne Williamson is way ahead of RFK Jr. and not that far behind of um, uh, Joe Biden with the like, voters under, I think, 30 age group. And I think that that is proof positive of why they won't let her have that same kind of access on the mainstream media. Mm. I mean, I'm, obviously, more mainstream media access would help anyone. And, and yes, people who are giving town halls to Christie's and Ramaswamy should also give town halls to um, to. RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson. I mean, the difference is just I, like I, I don't accept this as legitimate, but the difference that they're thinking is that Joe Biden is the incumbent president, and it, we we just we support him, and we don't want to give him a challenge. Well, that's what's so. Whereas on the Republican pernicious. side, there is no incumbent. Right. You, you have Simone Sanders, uh, Forti former yeah. Biden. I mean, they press don't think secretary. there should be primaries. They don't think there should be any. They they think it should be a coronation for. Biden, and whereas there's no, uh, I mean, some Republicans want there to be a Trump coronation, obviously, but the media is not handling it that yeah, way. Yeah, and just be honest about where you're, where you're coming from. When, when Simone Sanders, former Biden press secretary, who now has a news show on MSNBC, says there is no primary, there will be no right. primary, repeating the line that all of these uh, Democratic Party uh, acolytes have been saying since the beginning of this race, they are admitting to you plainly on their yeah. biased media platforms, that they don't have any intention of, of, of doing anything other than rigging the race for their guy. They're telling you. I mean, they've got to, on some level, respect that they're kind of just saying it out loud. But of course, they don't control the democratic processes. The, them saying that there is no primary doesn't manifest that into being. And the voters of New Hampshire certainly aren't falling for Reminds this. Reminds me of, um, of uh, Black Panther when uh, a Killmonger, the bad guy, shows up to challenge um, T'Challa for the for the throne. And they, but he has, he has a right to do that. So they have their little battle and yeah. he overthrows T'Challa. Yeah. And then T'Challa's not dead and he comes back and he's like, I'm, you know, our fight is not over because you didn't kill me. And Killmonger's like, no, no, it's over. I'm the king now. I'm, we're not redoing the fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it it it, it seems there's something I don't know a little almost like tantrumy and like toddlerish and pathetic mm -hmm. about just complete uh, constantly averring that this is the way the world is without being willing to engage in a substantive way about it. Um, it is very disappointing, uh, but it's not just Marianne, obviously, who is a left candidate uh, angling for the presidency. According to ABC's reporting, 2024 Green Party candidate Cornell West owes more than half a million dollars in taxes and child support. Records show that West owes nearly 466000 in federal income taxes from the years 2013 to 2017. Former Biden campaign operative John Cooper called West a 
deadbeat when he shared that, uh, according to tax records in Mercer County, New Jersey, where he owns a home, this came after he accrued and later repaid a debt of nearly $725,000 from 1998 to 2005, more than $34,000 in 2008. ABC also reports that he has an outstanding $49,500 in child support and a child support judgment from 2003. When asked about this on the Breakfast Club podcast last week, Cornell West said that this was being used as a distraction from his presidential campaign and added, quote, anytime you shine a flashlight under somebody's clothes, you're going to find all kind of mess because that's what it is to be human. Hmm. Now, what do you make of this, Robbie? Do you think this is going to hurt Cornell West's campaign? I don't think it will hurt him necessarily, frankly, at the numbers of support which he's receiving. Um, you know, people vote for, if people voting for the Green Party are really invested in the ideas of the Green Party and supporting third parties and are probably very ideologically on board with what he has to say. And I, I don't know how many were, were, are going to be turned off by this, maybe some of them. I mean, it does. I, I, I like Cornell West just fine. I'm not trying to, you know, smear him or anything. It, it sounds maybe like a legitimate um, issue of, of I mean, it, I, I think it's not wrong to want political candidates to have some um, sort of, you know, competence with their own finances and things like that. And again, I don't know the situation. Maybe it's Maybe it's unfair to him. Maybe it's it is what it is. I, I like I have no idea. This is literally the first I've ever which, heard of which this, of but... the candidates uh, on offer uh, are we going to pick that don't have uh, pending tax problems? Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it... but I'm not a Joe. I'm not a Donald Trump or Joe Biden. But that's but that's either. the scenario, and that's I think what what people yeah. who I mean, it would, would be nice to have a candidate who doesn't have these problems. Yeah, I, I agree. But it, this is this is what I think people like John Cooper, who are, who's one of the loudest Democratic Party acolytes on the on mm. the Internet, um, don't really recognize. He's advocating for Joe Biden. And many people are going to be looking at this race and they're looking at uh, yeah. uh, Cornel West because they actively don't want Joe Biden or Donald Trump, both of whom have been dogged since the beginning of their races, especially Donald Trump, with accusations of tax mismanagement and unpaid taxes and fraud, et cetera. That was a huge thing in, the, in, in Donald Trump's first sure. campaign. It, it, and it's something that, obviously, Joe Biden is dealing with now vis-a-vis -vis right. his son, not him personally, but through his son and these accusations that we've talked about in other but segments. But it's probably a good—what I'm saying is it could be a compelling reason as a third-party voter if I'm choosing, you know, who's going to be the—I don't have the magic power to choose who's going to be the Libertarian Party candidate, but all things being equal, I'd want one who does not have, you know, outstanding tax or child support. Sure. I think all things being equal, though, is not, doing a not lot of work. Joe Biden or Donald Trump, I'm still probably going to support the Libertarian right, but, Party candidate. But the, the question but. is whether this particular hit negatively affects Cornell West. And if there is no alternative, if there is no alternative, if all things aren't equal, if yeah. this is what it is, then I think it's people like John Cooper shouting into the void. Because nobody who likes people like Cornell West like him because he wants to in the corporate duopoly. And mm -hmm. they're willing to make some compromises on some other factors without defending it. Sure. They just don't. They just don't care the the options being what they Wouldn't are. Wouldn't it be nice to not have to compromise? Unfortunately, the world is what it is. I mean, there. I would say that in terms of a policy platform, Marianne Williamson is great, except for that she has these foreign policy commitments that have turned off so many people. I think on the anti-war uh, right and left, and also some of her views on Israel. I think Cornell West is great substantively, but he doesn't have the same kind of political delivery. I think that people are used to He's that may help him or hurt him down the line. And also now this recent story. 
I mean, if, if Joe Biden seems to be like a lovely dad, but that doesn't get me very far in the grand scheme of what I need for Americans, what I'd like to see from my own community. Trying to him for loving his son. How dare they? That's <laughs> right. the, you, you see that take sometimes from people on social media. It's so brain dead. Yeah. More rising right after this. UAP transparency champion Congressman Tim Burchett told The Hill that he and a bipartisan group of representatives, including Matt Gates, Jared Moskowitz, and Anna Paulina Luna, are demanding a select committee dedicated to UFO findings. Let's watch. We'd like for Speaker McCarthy and well, Chairman Comer actually to appoint a select committee just to do just that. So we would have subpoena powers and we could bring those people in. I think the thing is, if they don't have anything to hide, if the Pentagon doesn't, then they shouldn't throw up another roadblock as they've done in the past on some of this other stuff. So um, hopefully the, the Chairman Comer, I suspect the American public, though, is is lighting him up and and um, Speaker McCarthy about this issue because it's, uh, you know, polling shows that there's over more than half the population believes that there's something else out there. And those are those are pretty good odds for a politician. I always say 50 percent plus one is all you need on Election Day, but they clearly and, and it's really touched a nerve. Burchett says that so far he has not heard back from Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Meanwhile, General Mark Milley may have tried to debunk whistleblower David Gresh's bombshell testimony from the UAP hearing last month, but did he succeed? Here's host of the Redacted podcast and guest doctor Michael Sala. I don't know what to make of the Mark Milley side of this, but does that seem to be where we're going here? They're going to try to push for this idea of a fake alien invasion as some sort of a cover for disclosure? Well, that seems to be where they're heading because the UAP that have been cited and discussed in Congress and in uh, reports are always done in the context of them being some unknown national security threat. And, and Milley is on board with that. He's saying, yes, the UAPs are real. They're a national security threat. We need to put attention on that. But he just says what Grush had to say about them in some way being related to these uh, re retrieved uh, non-human craft um, and that people are being injured or have been killed for revealing the truth. Now, that is something that Millie has pushed back against. So, you know, we do see clearly that there are people within the Pentagon, you know, going all the way up to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that want the public to think that UAPs are a threat, but that's it. Someone has been killed over a threat to release this information. People have been injured over the threat That's to release no the information. Who? Oh. I, I, I want, I want to, I'm like, again, I'm saying this in the interest of wanting to take this as seriously mm -hmm. as the gravity of the accusations that were just made in that clip. If the argument is that people who are threatened don't want to be hurt, I understand why you wouldn't want to make disclosures. What is the rationale for not talking openly about people who are already deceased as a consequence of coming forward? At a, at a certain point, it, I'm sorry, I, like, I feel like I keep saying this. It's not that I don't want to want to believe, but what what is like the allegations right. are escalating without the specificity escalating, right? Or without any evidence, yeah, escalating, <laughs> like being revealed to support what they're saying. It's, it's just people testifying about things they've heard. I'm more skeptical than you are uh, on this issue. I, uh, I, I mean, so I was interested 
to hear Burchett make the popularity argument there mm -hmm. to say that, um, uh, you know, officials who, in his view, are stonewalling, maybe not stonewalling, just not uh, don't, not expressing enough of an interest, as much interest in him. His interest seems pretty sincere, that he cares about this issue. But he's pointing out that, you know, so do a lot of people, uh, bipartisan, that it's not particularly ideological or party-based, you know, want to know, do think that the U.S. government has evidence of extraterrestrial or, at, at a minimum, uh, technology or even life that they, they the people believe that and they want to they want more uh, to be done to declassify that and and work you know serving that goal is a publicly popular thing to do and which is true like I mean we keep we talk about UAPs a lot on our show these days because we can see the audience interest in yeah. wanting to learn more about it but at some point we don't have anything new to tell them about, to tell you who's yeah. watching the show about it, except that a lot of people are making, a, a number of people have made claims, David Grush and others. Um, it, it's great that they're, they have come forward and they're making their claims in public. And in fact, they swore them before Congress. And I appreciate uh, uh, Burchett and Anna Polina Luna and other people's interest in this topic. Uh, and, you know, maybe a, maybe a, a, a special uh, a, a committee with subpoena power would do a lot of good if we could actually subpoena the people who are standing in the way of greater disclosure or who are making these threats or who are the government agencies. But I haven't even gotten a clear answer. Before we can, you can subpoena a specific person, I haven't even gotten a clear answer on what is the agency that is doing the, um, that, that, that is Blocking stopping this, the yeah. disclosures from happening. Is it the CIA? Is it the FBI? Yeah, you reference is it the, in the Homeland clip Security? Someone blocking. But it's always someone, but it's not, can we have greater specificity than then that, like, can we narrow it down to an agency, yes. a department? Yeah. There can be, an, as long as it's just a nefarious, generic other, we'll, we'll never have actual accountability until we know what, like, what branch of the government we're even talking about. What do you make of this argument that um, a threat of an alien invasion could be w w wielded mm -hmm. as an excuse to not give more substantive disclosures? Like, so basically saying our national security interests in preventing, I guess, a wide-scale invasion are why we're not telling you more about our knowledge of Reminds UAP. me of, um, I know our viewers love my nerdy references, but uh, <laughs> Watchmen is, uh, is a, a big part of Watchmen is the villain fakes an alien invasion, fakes a, a attack by this giant squid. squid that attacks New York um, in order to get everyone on board with it. Actually, he's left-wing. It's to get everyone on board with like his progressive policies to like take climate change more seriously and mm -hmm. have Robert Redford elected president, um, which is pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, he fakes it. It's not a real, it's a creature he creates in a lab. It's not an actual alien invasion. Yeah, I mean, look, on one hand, I, I have a lot of um, respect for, I think there's a lot of credibility in the idea that national security interests or the specter of national security interests are leveraged to justify non-disclosures at the time. We're still being told uh, over half a century out from the Kennedy assassination that there are documents that cannot be released in national security interests, even though they were supposed to be released, the last of them were supposed to be released Disclosures in would make people want more funding for the military, is, is, is the piece of this puzzle that doesn't quite fit. I, I tend some, to agree. Some disclosures would, I mean, we saw what the patriotic fervor after 9-11 De yep. demonstrate even shreds of evidence that there's an actual off-world threat, would, uh, would the military budget could go through the, through the roof? I, I, I wouldn't be inclined to agree. They could leak it and then pretend they didn't. They do also, that with everything. Also, what are we talking about? 
I'm sorry, this is, I'm sorry to keep referencing sci-fi, but in some ways that's most specific stuff that we have yeah. to, to lean on in terms of theoretically how this stuff could play out. I just watched all of season one of the invasion of Invasion on Apple TV over the weekend. And that show, I think, conceptually was very interesting, although I have my thoughts and feelings about how it played out. Uh, this is mm. not a TV review show, but um, conceptually, I I, <laughs> I liked it because many TV shows, yada, 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 the invasion part. You know, you see them in the sky and then we're colonized already or it's a, it's a fight that happens in deep space or there's an asteroid coming or something like that. Mm. You know, you don't often get like the global what what. If they actually tried to globally, you know, put put tentacles down and start mm -hmm. colonizing the Earth, what that would look like, and how scary that would be, and how the governments would respond, and how they'd figure out what was even happening. And I did enjoy seeing that play out. But one of the things that was somewhat gripping about the show was how overwhelming the aliens were from a technological perspective. How it didn't seem that they had any vulnerabilities the way that the aliens in say World of the Worlds were allergic to water, and that ended up ending them at the end of the day. Spoiler alert for a very old book. Yeah. Um, is it water? Is wa okay? Yeah. Well, it's water in uh, signs, too. It, it is. Yeah. But here in this show, they didn't give you that. So the point yeah. is, you know, what does it mean? An alien species, apparently capable of light travel, incredibly technologically sophisticated. According to these reports, they have craft that can move in ways that are incompatible entirely with both what human ships can do and even human physiology in terms of the G-forces they would exert. And you're telling me that we are on the precipice of going head to head with these folks and the government thinks it's the best idea to not mobilize all the people to start turning our canning factories into weapons manufacturers and innovating and trying to fight back and analyzing alien technology from a downed craft so that we can supercharge our own technology so that we have a fighting chance, but that we should just keep us all in the dark because... Yeah. Reasons like I'm just I'm struggling. I want to believe struggling. Robbie, but I'm struggling. Remember in Independence Day, we upload yeah. a computer virus 100%. that's compatible with the alien defense. Just get that USB system. key in there. <laughs> how how absurd. No, but honestly, compared to Invasion, that made a lot more oh, sense. Oh, I don't want to get into that because at least then there was an acknowledgement. It, it set up the idea that after scientists and our best minds studied this craft, that there was this vulnerability. And we could exploit that vulnerability. In 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 invasion, it's mm. so much dumber than that. Um, it's giving uh, Stranger Things mind melding with a child. Oof, it's yeah. giving ridiculous. But the point is, like back to, back to the news story. Like I, I, if there are good sources, I and mean, I do know that there's a very robust UFO UAP community. I have looked at some of the message boards on Reddit. I, I have seen their frustration with some of the news coverage. But it's not clear to me that there's a lot of basis for that. So if there are particular links, if there are particular um, uh, experts that we should be looking at, looking to, learning from, having come on the show, please do let us know in the comments. Because I, I do very That's much want to understand why there is so much invested relief, despite there being a real trickle of new information. Absolutely. Let us know, and we'll have more Rising Red after this. Is Joe Biden set for a Hillary-level 2016 catastrophe? That's what the analysts over at MSNBC discussed on yesterday's episode of Meet the Press, citing the president's lukewarm poll numbers. For the
2020 election. He was right side up, which in our polarized politics <laughs> is quite astonishing. But look, Trump and Rudy Giuliani began this campaign to try to tarnish Biden, to try to turn him into the Clinton name, you know, with the, with the obsession over, over the Ukraine businesses with Hunter. And it's worked. His numbers now look more like Hillary Clinton 16 than Biden 20. Kimberly, we, I'm maybe maybe abortion is the difference there that 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 will bail him out but that doesn't look good for him well it, it won't be able to bail him out on its own i mean yeah. to the point about focusing on the economy yes the economy is important the two biggest issues is democracy and an offshoot of that is the abortion issue right. that is something that should be front and center of a message yes you have to talk about the economy and through that he can tout the achievements that he made and sort of boost that incumbency value but he seems to be campaigning in a bygone era that he feels more comfortable in that he wants to wishes the world were but that's not where we we are right now. We have the former president about to go on trial for attacking the nation's election. I mean, this is two people who are well-known commodities. At the end of the day, Joe Biden's going to run against Donald Trump. That's what this campaign is going to be about. So you might as well make it about Donald Trump now. If that's your goal, if that's where you have to go to win this election. You Donald Trump's making it about Biden. There are two people who are way underwater. Like, this is going to be about one another. And so just get on with it. But the Democratic Party, like Tim Wallace, they're rallying around Joe Biden in part because they believe that that's the safe play. That's three yards in a cloud of dust, to use a seasonal metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> but what if that actually is the riskier option? Yeah. Uh, you showed those numbers right there. What if, in fact, Biden isn't suffering from being attacked? What if, in fact, Biden is especially vulnerable to those attacks? And what looks damningly similar to what happened in 2016 is that there wasn't even a fraction of a second where Hillary Clinton's camp took seriously the critiques that it was getting, not just from, let's say, bad faith actors on the right that just wanted her to go down and be going down, but from people on the left and from people within the mainstream Democratic Party who felt, felt like she was out of touch, that she was a, running like a 90s-era candidate that was trying to um, uh, trim up her uh, neoliberal, you know, trade policies and the like with a bunch of woke speak about intersectionality after having stood by her husband as he uh, passed the crime bill and cut welfare and did more to hurt the social safety net than any Republican could ever dream of, who looked at her and said, that isn't enough. She has to reckon with her policies and explain to us why she's going to be a different kind of candidate going forward. And she didn't do that. She didn't take it seriously. She said, Russia, 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 and played the blame game, campaigned poorly and lost. And are we seeing any clarity from the Biden camp that they understand that this is a serious problem that they'd have to contend with? Or are we going to get another campaign where he thinks he can win from the basement? He thinks he's going to win. He thinks abortion is going to bail him out. How, why, what it, is, is that? That's going to be be a little bit more distant in people's memories. Um, you know, maybe you can count on some other right-wing Supreme Court decision to help you. It sounds like, or at least what some of those advisors were saying, is that they're not worried because once it's clear that Trump is the challenge—I mean, it's not technically clear right now, even if it's pretty clear. I mean, it's a little ambiguous, again, because of the legal situation. I, I genuinely think it's, at this point, kind of wild. But w they think once it's clear that he's up against Trump— that favorability number will rebound because when it's just a binary choice between the two of them, people are, are they'll think, they think more fondly of Biden when they have the Trump spectacle in their faces. That seems to be their, their theory. How did that go for know. Hillary? Hmm? How did that go yeah. for Hillary? Well, it went well for Biden last time. Biden also had COVID last time. Right. And people very strongly believed, because of statements that Trump was making, that he was going to be cavalier unsafe and not rise to the moment when there was a broad consensus that COVID was a problem 
there were no vaccines and it was killing people. And their hospitals were packed to the gills and people were losing their loved ones left and right. Real people were experiencing real loss of loved ones. And they wanted to make sure that someone competent was going to administer and distribute these vaccines. I think that's largely why Biden won. Not to mention the fact that he made a lot of promises, very specific promises about sending out $2,000 checks, about canceling student debt, about addressing the economic crisis that the country was in. And you might think that Bidenomics worked and inflation has been brought down in some respects and in many respects it has been, but many Americans disagree. They say that life is worse than it was for them four years ago. They say that he hasn't meaningfully addressed any of the inflationary sectors of the economy, education, healthcare, food, transportation, and that he has specifically reneged on any number of promises. And you can say, oh, it's the Republicans' fault, it wasn't his fault, blah, blah, blah. The point is, he went to Georgia, said, if you win me this state, I'm going to do all of these things. And then he immediately reneged and has been blaming the Republicans the whole time. So if his pitch is, I can't do anything because Republicans won't let me, then what's the point of voting for him in the first place? Well, that what they're saying is because democracy is at stake, because yeah. because uh, Trump is this existential evil, you know, he has to be, we, the ring has to be thrown into the volcano and he needs to be destroyed. That's the that's the cable news establishment democratic view of why, of, of course, Trump is this unique evil who has ever existed, so there's nothing that needs to be promised or done, and uh, and and that that message will be enough. And I, I don't know, if, I mean, it was enough in 2020. You're right, the circumstances were different. Um, but ultimately, look, if someone, if, 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 if they don't, people need to get into the race and challenge Biden, if that's what's going to happen. Like, well, there are people in the race challenging well, Biden. Well, and see how well that's going. I mean, but, well, how do you square the view that it's so obvious that Democrats need someone else and so many Democrats want someone else, but there are other people running and, you know, they're getting... Because they don't, the, the, these panels don't even acknowledge the fact that there are other people running. They don't. They won't, I mean... If I were, I, I have spoken to many people. I think if people, massive numbers of Democrats actually want a different candidate, someone would be able to exploit I, that to their benefit. I think that the, I've spoken to several people who aren't even aware that there are challengers to Biden in the race, who don't even know who, because why, how would they know? Where are they going to turn on the TV and see even a poll that show, with Marion Williamson on it? They regularly submit polls where they'll ask what the public thinks about Michelle Obama running, and they won't ask the public what Marianne, what they think of Marianne Williamson running. And for all kinds of reasons, they are not interested in RFK Jr., although they were kind of for a while because it was salacious and grabby, and they like to say, look at this fake Republican, da 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 Like, he's not really a Democrat, and that was good for them, and they're kind of anti-Trump mm -hmm. zeal on those shows. But someone like Marianne, who's just going to contrast a, a progressive policy platform that would be like moderate to conservative in Scandinavia and really expose the extent that Joe Biden hasn't lived up to what the average values of the, his party are, you know, that is, that is a bridge too far. So, you know, I think that there has been some speculation. Obviously, we've talked about Gavin Newsom seeming to, seeming to position himself mm -hmm. in these ways. In the event that something happens to Biden, right. not, in, not in a challenging him sort of way. No, I mean, at least not so far. Yeah. There's been the um, th uh, third, uh, sorry, that other third party effort, no labels, uh, you know, yeah. teasing a run. And obviously there's the Cornell West of it all. But I, I, I don't think it can be overstated how difficult it is to break through. And despite that, 
Marianne Williamson. I, I'm bringing her up because she is the lowest polling challenger to Biden. Yeah. And yet she is still polling higher than every single Republican challenger to Donald Trump, except for, I think, now yeah, uh, I mean, we're, uh, these are, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy. It's a similar level of, yeah, to the, the main challenger. But, it, I mean, it, that's similar, right? On the, on the Republican side, uh, there, there was conviction, uh, a, a conviction among some Republicans, some conservative personalities, that there was a that there was a real appetite for someone other than Trump in some in some way. And now we're testing that theory, and it turns out there is not that real appetite for someone well, other than Trump. I think the same thing is true on the Democratic I, side. Mm. I think there are dissenters who want someone else. I mean, I, it's a large country. There are probably millions of people who want someone else. But the bulk of the Democratic Party, to the extent they're paying attention at all, they, they don't like that Joe Biden's so old, and they don't necessarily like what's going on in his presidency. But I don't think they want to rock the boat. I don't. I, I, I do. And the polls. I mean, I think Say you want to rock do. the boat. No, I think— I think no, I many think, progressives on the left do. No, it's not about it's not progressives. Enough. Majorities of Democrats didn't want Biden to run. Democrats. That was the poll. It was Democrats. It wasn't about me. Well, there he's was running, and they're not going to do anything about it. Who's the they? I mean, if there was some—we're seeing that if, if there was significant interest for someone else, that person could get in and make a dent. They are doing getting in on the Republican side, and they're not making any debt because it turns out there is not significant interest right, in but someone I, else. I never made a claim that there was significant interest for non-Trump. I think the establishment doesn't want Trump, but Trump has always had a core 30-odd percent base that has not wavered no matter what he says or does. And the rest of the Republican—and right. and it's, it's the people who care the most about politics, and everybody else and is Joe like— And Joe Biden oh. has the core base of the entire party. No. I think there are a lot of people yes. who don't want Trump. What was the poll, exit poll? I don't want to make up numbers here, but I believe it was something like 60 percent of people uh, in exit polls in 2020 who voted for Biden said so they were just by voting against Trump and didn't really even like Biden. It might have even been well, worse. They're going to have the opportunity to do so again. Right. And I, so I, I do actually think that abortion could carry him a very far away because um, we've seen in Ohio and Kansas over and over again when abortion was on the ballot, people come out in droves. I think that is perverse. The Democratic Party could, in some ways— be effectuating what many folks skeptically have thought, have thought, cynically have thought, was a long-term plan to not codify Roe, even when they have the votes to do so, for exactly this reason, because they know they can use it as a leverage point against Republicans, and they were willing to jeopardize the reproductive freedoms of American women so that they can win races. And I think it's sick and extremely messed up if that was, in fact, the plan, and it's working. It has been working in midterms and over the last six months, and that it might go ahead and work and save Joe Biden, who I think un uh, does not does not deserve to write the coat heels of women's fear into the White House. However, I do think—I I, I, I personally would caution against believing that there is a sincere desire to have Joe Biden in office, and the, the struggle that he's going to have is given that there is a 30 percent animated, hyper-animated people for Trump, plus your average conservative who just wants a Republican in the White House. Biden does not have a core hypermotivated person at all for him. There's no door-knocking, donation-based constituency. He's got his billionaire donors and, and stuff who want the establishment to keep establishment mm -hmm. in. But he does not have that fire. He just has a generalized morass of people who feel bullied into it. And the question is, can the Democratic Party bully people hard enough to the polls that they beat Trump? That's it. Yes. <laughs> they have like a 55 percent chance or something of that being yeah. the reality, right? And, and, and again, going back to the initial comparison to 2016, many people thought it was negligent. 
that the Democratic Party put forward a candidate that could even be that close in the race with Donald Trump. It's worth noting. Sorry, but this is just the, the stats. I got to do this. I know that people don't like it when I bring it up. But all the polls at that time showed that the margins between Bernie Sanders and Trump were so much bigger. Bernie Sanders was like 10 point, points up. Hillary Clinton was in the margin of error the entire time, except for, if I recall correctly, the two weeks after the Access Hollywood tape. It was neck and neck between the two of them the whole time. And the Democratic Party looked at those numbers, looked at Bernie having the highest favorability in the Senate compared to uh, Hillary's lowest favorability, um, and said, nah, we're going to go with Hillary because it's her turn. And, and they have to live with that choice. It wasn't Jill Stein. It wasn't Russia's. It was the, it was the Hillary Clinton. It was the Clinton campaign in the DNC, Pied Pipering Donald Trump yeah. and hubristically thinking that they deserved it and they couldn't lose. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on that. I, and I, it's, I think it's inarguable that the Clinton campaign played some dirty pool in 2016 and uh, that things very well and the DNC, been different. The whole Democratic sure. Party establishment did. For sure. Now, over on CNN, Democratic Representative Dean Phillips was met with pushback from the network's own analyst when he said Biden should step to the side for a younger Democratic nominee. My call is for the president to pass the torch. Uh, I, I think that would be in the country's best interest and certainly Democrats. We have an extraordinary bench of Democrats ready to go, prepared, proximate, well-positioned, but we'll never know that. What's your reaction response to that? I think he's very alone in this. And I don't think that that is the sentiment of uh, a lot of the Democrats, even so, Victor, those polls that you that you talk about where it says the majority of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to run, those are trash polls to me because they are completely in a vacuum. They're not focused on anything in reality. And so until that reality changes, what we have is Joe Biden that is going to be the Democratic nominee. And I believe he's going to be a very strong Democratic nominee with an economy that is strong. People are starting to feel it. You had a reporter earlier on this morning talking about how consumer confidence is growing. And all of these measures where economists are now saying they don't expect a recession, there's over a year to the election. So those numbers are gonna start sinking in. And when you have a contrast with what Joe Biden is putting on the floor and this congressman supports his agenda versus the crazy bread MAGA extremist agenda that is trying to take away women's rights, that is trying to ban books, that is trying to rewrite African-American history, that is not something that Americans want in the White House. So, you know, this is what I'm saying. Like, there are cracks showing through, Robbie. It, seem, it seems like there are enough folks. I mean, this is a, like a mainstream Minnesota representative. It does not seem to representative like there are folks at all. To what? To overthrow Biden. That's not what I was going to finish the okay, sentence. Okay, okay. My point is not that there's a... There's a there's a cohort Everyone loves of people a scrappy insurance insurgency. No, there is like let's just talk about what we know for a fact. What we know for a fact because we've been following this for months and listening to the news reporting and analysis is that these are not the kind of statements that people were making five months ago. They are not. Around the time Joe Biden announced his campaign, there was lockstep consensus. There was Bernie Sanders and the progressives coming out the same day to say that they endorsed Joe Biden. There was not this kind of friction. And over time, it does seem like something is building. We're seeing increasing negative coverage in historically friendly press. We're seeing a pivot on the coverage of all the Hunter Biden news, where they are full-throatedly, liberal media is full-throatedly embracing that there's something untoward here and that this sweetheart deal was wrong and arguably unethical. 
We're seeing a willingness to have coverage of Joe Biden's more doddering moments on the beach and the $700 gaffe and just saying no comment about the people of Maui. And I'm feeling I'm, I'm talking to people that I run into in D.C. who say behind the scenes that there is some skepticism about his cognitive ability to make it through another campaign system. I mean, this is there. There does. I, mean, I share all those things. I, I like. I don't disagree with you. I. I, I don't I don't support Joe Biden for presidency for a lot of the no, reasons so I, you're calling I, to, out. To your point, I think that there is a question about whether that shift, whether these cracks, is going to yes. manifest in something that will actually derail Biden's campaign or empower someone to come out and actually run against him, who is a mainstream candidate, yeah. who cannot be ignored in the same way that RFK Jr. and Marianne been ignored. That I, is yet to be determined. Sure. My skepticism of that is just very high. Sure. All, I understand all what I'm you're saying. saying is that I'm seeing some cracks in the armor. Are they going to widen? Stay tuned. We'll keep giving you the coverage that you want. More rising right after this. Health officials pushing more COVID boosters. Here's former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb on Face the Nation saying COVID boosters will likely be an annual necessity, much like the flu shot. Let's watch. Right. We know what 17% of the population took the booster shot, according to the CDC, last time around. Um, why does someone need to continue to update? Yeah, look, I think we have to have a lot of humility around this virus. There's a lot we don't understand, and it's continuing to surprise us as it is with this BA286 mutation. But this does look like it's going to be a flu like paradigm where there's going to be new variants that emerge each year. Hopefully, we'll guess right in terms of how we formulate the vaccines, but you're going to need updated protection like you do from flu to try to match the vaccine against the variants that's circulating. Mm -hmm. People are still going to have residual immunity um, from prior infection and prior vaccination that protects them against severe disease probably even if they don't get vaccinated. But if you want to update that protection and also get more protection against the possibility of infection, you will need to keep up to date with your vaccine. Now this comes as a new highly mutated COVID variant has appeared in Michigan that is likely to be better at escaping the immune systems of vaccinated or previously infected people. But there is no evidence the variant is deadlier than older versions of the virus. Let's keep watching mutated strain of COVID has just shown up in Michigan, BA 2.86. How concerned does the public need to be? Well, right now, I, I've talked to a number of virologists who are usually pretty staid, and they're pretty concerned about this. Right now, it doesn't appear to be spreading widely. There is um, seven strains that have been identified and sequenced in five different countries, so the UK, Denmark, Israel, and now in the US. We don't know whether or not this has been spreading quietly, and we just didn't detect it or it's something that's spreading very quickly. The concern is that when you look at these different strains that have been identified, they're genetically very similar. So that suggests that it's probably spreading simultaneously in multiple countries. Mm -hmm. Whether or not this is gonna be more transmissible than what we've seen before, that's the key question. Certainly at this point, it doesn't appear more pathogenic. So it doesn't appear to be more dangerous, but it may be more transmissible than the strains that are circulating now. And in that case, it could overtake them. It's too early to know. Um, the testing's underway. I think we're going to know a lot more in a week or two. But to, again, put this in perspective, this new variant is as genetically different from Omicron as Omicron was from the original strain that emerged in Wuhan. So this is a highly mutated variant. Hospitalizations are tracking upwards in the U.S., having risen by about 14 percent in a week, though still very low compared to the height of the pandemic. So... That was an interesting interview with Scott Gottlieb. I mean, I have some questions. Um, he's kind of stressing the need to get boosted the way, you know, a lot, some people get the flu vaccine every year, every other year. Um, but then he, he does acknowledge that there is some lasting protection if you've had 
COVID in the past as virtually everyone has, mm -hmm. or had, or also had some level of shots, which uh, many, like a, a vast majority of people have as well. How is the, is, if this new variant is, a, is as different from Omicron as Omicron was from the original strain, how well tailored, we don't have a new booster right now, it's the bivalent booster still, which is the one, right, which is tailored to Omicron, I thought. So if this new strain is that different and we haven't updated the booster yet, I don't, I, I feel like I fail to see why that would even be. And then he does sound, I mean, he, he's like weakly as asserting that you should get it. He's saying that, I mean, but you do have some protection. Um, like, cause it is different, a little well, bit different from the flu in terms of like not everyone has gotten the flu or gets the flu routinely. Like we, with COVID, again, virtually everyone has gotten it at some multiple people, right. multiple I mean, times. I think also most, most of us have gotten the flu. Well, maybe over our other. whole lifetime, but not in a three year period. I don't know. I mean, back before COVID, when I, did not was not as vigilant about washing my hands or masking in public places. I used to get sick multiple times well, every sick, winter. But not necessarily the, the flu is a specific. Uh, I don't know. I, I used to get. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't going into the yeah. hospital and getting diagnosed, but I felt like I was getting the. I flu get sick regularly. all the time, but it, it wasn't. It's usually. So strep. I get strep all the time. I think I've said that on the I, show. It's not the flu. I I think that a lot of people do choose to get flu vaccines yeah. that aren't necessarily older, vulnerable because the flu is bad and they get sick a lot. I, I, I have at times been in a school environment or I've been working in an office place where they have, you know, yeah. flu vaccines in the cafeteria or something where I, if it, it's made for, if it's very easy yeah. for me to get one, My I'll get one. I think the average person has less protection from the flu, frankly, than they do from COVID by now, but. But this, but this, is, this is the important point. And when I spoke to Dr. Vinay Prasad over a year ago, I think for the first time on my show, and we were going back and forth about this, you know, he agreed with me that at the end of the day, we just don't know, we don't know how long the protection from having had COVID is going to last. Just like there's some ambiguity about how long the protection from the vaccine lasts. And so I completely credit and agree with the idea that we should have been more vocal about the protection that having had COVID offers you as we were planning our COVID policies. At the same time, we are not going to know. Acting as though that immune protection lasts forever seems to be naive. And there's some question about what to do about the fact that at some point there's going to be a fall off in protection. And then what do we do then? Mm -hmm. I would hate for it to be the case that people start to feel so safe and secure in the protection they've gotten from it, having experienced COVID that there comes a time where they no longer have that protection. We have not been developing um, vaccines to address new variants. And people are so turned off by the idea of being vaccinated and so and have stigmatized vaccines to the point where at a point where we might very much need them again, right. folks don't get them. Right. Although so many people have had the experience of getting the vaccine and then getting COVID sometimes immediately after, sometimes a few months after, sometimes a year after. Um, you know, we, we've seen, we, I do accept from looking at the scientific data, I, I'm not anti-vax at all, I, that the vaccine has helped um, reduce severe disease and death, particularly among very vulnerable and at-risk populations, like the elderly, people with health conditions. I think it's done a lot of good. I myself have gotten vaccinated. Um, I probably will get uh, get the, the bivalent booster at, like and a flu shot this fall because uh, I am not persuaded by a lot of the it's harmful arguments. Um, I, I don't I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. persuaded by the you shouldn't get them because it's actually a threat to your health. Mm -hmm. I don't find a lot of that evidence very compelling. 
I also don't know. The, the not compelling is on the it's really harmful and it's also really great and important and offers this robust protection and stops you from getting it. That's not been very compelling. Also, that you shouldn't get it because it's super dangerous has not been compelling sure. for me either. If I was a teenage male, you know, a male between the ages of like 13 and 18, uh, I would be a little bit more averse to getting additional shots based on the, the reporting on that kind of stuff. But I'm not in that age category. I do get I get respiratory stuff a lot, so I'll, I'll take it. Maybe it's not doing a lot of good, but I'm not so worried about the harm. That's my calculation. Now I think everybody should make that calculation on their own in consultation with their doctors if they want. They have to keep in mind when they hear from Scott Gottlieb, obviously, that he is on the board of Pfizer. Um, and there are you know, financial incentives in play. But this just needs to be a decision people make for themselves. It's not in a lot of cases. I was just seeing that, what is it? Rutgers University is going to start disenrolling students that have not gotten the most recent booster. Um, I, I think it's just it's totally wrong to override people's individual choice and take away their education or employment or anything like that because you won't get a certain number of shots at this point. So it looks like Moderna, Pfizer, and Novavax are coming out with new versions of their COVID-19 vaccines and boosters that will target the XBB 1.5 Omicron subvariant, which is very similar to this EG.5 variant. Mm -hmm. that are, they're very closely related, so it should work for both of those. And But it's not out yet. No. And I think that there, I've seen some on the other side of this so issue. So you should wait for that one. On the other side of this issue, I've seen some people complaining online that there has been foot dragging and delay for people who really do want access to these um, more tailored to what's happening right yeah. now uh, vaccines. And so, I mean, there is this interesting, I don't know. I Yeah, I don't want foot dragging. I want to make it available. I think the FDA gets in the way of that. But you shouldn't be obligated to take it. It should just be available if you want. I leave it to individual choice. Right. I don't. I don't exact. I don't know what is delaying these particular vaccines, but I do think that there is a way that we can make it easy for the government and for these companies to withhold or make not available tools that people can use on their own volition to protect themselves. If we stigmatize those tools too hard, that's that's my main concern. I'm also very concerned that there has been so much less testing and tracking. Will we know that there is an actual shift and a change in an emergency at a time at which we can actually do something about it? A lot of the information that we have now about COVID rates is from testing sewage systems, because that's kind of the, the last line of resort, and many municipalities have even stopped doing that. And information is useful. Yes, it can be used to scaremonger and you know force people into policies that we don't agree with, but it can also be used to protect ourselves. And historically, it has been a technique to control populations to make it so that you can't even measure what bad is happening to them. And so I do I do have some concerns about that. Um, you know, is there going to be a public pressure to keep doing the R&D to develop new vaccines that work against new variants if the public isn't buying them, if the government isn't buying them for the public to use. These are I mean, all if, different if ways it can play out. If they out. don't meet the, even the public's definition of the word work, though, right? No, is but, the, that, but that's the, my point. The, there was a time when the version of COVID that was out was killing a lot of people mm -hmm. because we didn't have immunity and because we didn't have zero baseline protection. Right. And I'm saying that Given that the protection is unlikely to last forever, even from people who've been very COVID skeptical, like Vinay Prasad, 
are we going to be prepared if and when that shift happens? That's all I'm asking. And if that is not at all a concern for you, then that's not a concern for you. But to me, the point of a public health apparatus is to be guarding against those possibilities, even if they're relatively remote. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll give you updates on a lot of the things we covered today, including Maui's recovery and President Biden's visit there. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. Goodbye. Bye.